one of the greatest joys, one of them, of being here is to be able to participate in, in the worship. I'm just always... The, the content of the songs that are chosen, the theology of them, that if we were just to read them without, without a piano or without a song leader, they would, uh, they would just literally fill us with life. And then for every, the accompaniment and the leading, all in a way that just demonstrates an honor and a reverence mixed with joy. And um, it's, it's always, um, I love to be moved by music, and I'm against those who say that music should not move us. I think we were created to be moved by music. Um, but in this day in evangelicalism, the one thing that I most appreciate about here is I am to be principally moved by the truth of the letter, of the theology that is um, preached. And I do, I don't, I use that word that way, that is preached uh, through the worship. Because it is proclamation. It is proclamation. When it is theologically rich, when it's theologically correct. And that's why for men, um, you should... Maybe sometimes our wives are more given to listening to sound um, theology preached through worship. But it would be something that, that we should also give ourselves to. Rather than mindlessly sitting in the car or um, listening to something that's counterproductive. To actually fill our lives, fill our homes with not all kinds of worship. Because not all kinds of worship are pleasing to the Lord. But that worship that is biblical and reverent and joyful. Uh, Before we get started, we'll be in Romans 12. Before we get started, young men, a lot of times, all of us, will point out the errors and the weaknesses in the upcoming generation. I mean, my father did it to uh, my generation, and I imagine his father did it to his. Uh, you know the story, you know, son, when I was your age, I walked to school 47 miles uphill both ways with bob wire on my feet in a snowstorm. And, and what I want you young men to understand is that every generation has its challenges. Now they, they may be different. And we may have different tendencies, all sorts of things, but every generation has its challenges. And all of us, young men, listen, all of us come from the same stock. We do. We were all born in Adam. All of us who are Christian have experienced a like regeneration and we share in a common faith. All of us. We all have battles. But our battles are meant to be overcome, not in the power of the flesh or the strength of the will, but through the grace and power of Christ. But it all begins with the word. Romans 12, verse 1. 
Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, please, for the sake of your Son, for the edification of your church, for the strengthening of the institution, Lord, that was formed by your decree, the family, please help us to grow as men. Not a Caesar, not a Spartan, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. Oh, Father, grace us with grace. Multiply grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, I urge you. You know, preaching is not just the communication of information, no matter how true it is. Here we see a pastoral heart in Paul, a great pastoral heart. What does he know that's going on? He knows, he knows that that his entire enterprise, his entire employment has to do with very weighty matters, with heaven and hell, with life and death. He calls them brethren. He loves them. He loves them. Them, And he wants the best for them. And so he's not just simply going to whisper out some information. He's urging them. He's begging them. He is exhorting them. So many times we hear this, don't we? Even in the law. Oh, Israel, if only you had a heart. How many times in Proverbs, the same thing. Oh, son, listen to me. Hear my words. Heed the voice of your mother. Just on and on. It's not just simply a transference of information or a communication even of truth, but but it's urging. Do you remember how I gave you that illustration that a man could be neglectful of his wife, which would end up destroying the wife's relationship with her children, wife's relationship with with daughters-in-laws and sons-in-laws, how that, that, that all that comes together can have just such a major impact on so many different lives. But with godliness, it's the same way, brethren. The impact that godliness can have. The generational changing power of you just deciding to spend a lot more time with your children, to spend more time listening to your wife, do you see? More time in the word, the positive impact that can have. It's like, it's like throwing a pebble into the middle of a, a very calm pond or lake and then watching just the impact it has on everything. So Paul is urging and I urge you. And when I, when, I, when I look at in the mirror of the word and I see where 
I need to make corrections. It's not just, oh, I need to make corrections. It's, it's an exhortation. But always with the knowledge that God commands nothing that his people cannot obey. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, now what, what's going on here? What are the mercies of God? Well, the first thing you need to look at is therefore. And hold your place. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see something. I want you to see something that is extremely important that will help you understand the Christian life as much as anything. Verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, therefore. In both these cases, there is a major change going on, a major shift in the emphasis of both epistles, and it helps us understand how to live the Christian life. Now, just hold that, okay? Hold that thought. And he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? What are they? In this context, I would have to say the first 11 chapters of Romans. So, what is the motivation that can urge us, push us, drive us? empower us, move us, motivate us. What is it? He says, I urge you, I'm urging you to give yourself, he's going to say, as a living sacrifice. I'm urging you, brethren, to give the greatest thing you can possibly give your own selves to something. I'm going to urge you to give the greatest sacrifice a man can give, but I'm going to urge you how? How am I going to motivate you to do this? By the mercies of God. And then he lays out for us in the first three chapters of Romans, the radical depravity of man. And then he lays out for us in chapter four and chapter five, redemption in the person of Christ. Chapter six, Redemption going on into seven, going on into eight, sanctification going on in chapters nine through 11 of describing God's covenant faithfulness that he's never let his people down and he never will. That he'll always fulfill all his promises. But then if you take those 11 chapters and you wanted to condense it all into one thing, look what I've done for you in Christ. You want a motivation? It is always the mercies of God. And what is the greatest revelation of the mercies of God? What God has done for us in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. What should motivate us to do everything we do? To serve our employer. To give ourselves to our wives. To pour our lives into our children. To work for the edification of the church. What is the motivation for godliness? It is always this. What God has done for us in Christ. That's it. That's it. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4. Hold your place. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, what has Paul done? Do you know, brethren, you could spend eternity in the first three chapters of Ephesians 
studying it 24 hours a day, and you would never even come close to the foothills of the Everest of this book. But what is he doing? He lets us know right in the first 13 verses, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, every, he lays before us everything God has done for us and the cosmos and the church, everything God has ever done is in Christ and his redemptive work on Calvary. So what does he say? Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you. There he goes again. It's not just, we've had a wonderful theological discussion, haven't we? That's not what he's saying. He says, now I implore you, as he said to the Romans, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's he's going to urge you to give your life as a living sacrifice. In Ephesians 4, he's urging you, imploring you to walk in a manner worthy. And in both cases, the motivation for that comes from what everything God has done for us in the person of Christ. So how do you grow in your motivation? How do you grow in your love? How do you? I can tell you what typically goes on in evangelicalism. You go to a conference with emotional music and really emotional speakers and you get all fired up and the fire lasts for about three days. It's like, it's like they think that, that, that man, that the Christian man is something like a wind-up toy. You know? Wind him up at the conference. Wind him up and then loose him and let him go. And yeah, it lasts a couple of days. And then you know what? With every, every time a man goes through this, you know what happens? He becomes more and more bitter because he becomes more and more hopeless because he becomes to realize I'm never going to grow in maturity and I'm never going to walk with a passion for Christ. And then someone comes along and says, you need to walk for a passion in Christ. And rightly so, they're as angry as they can be. Just stop it. Another thing that we have to be careful of is, is when we talk about, you know, it's always the great commission and going out there and being a warrior and champion for Christ and everything. And men in the pews are going, but my entire life, my family, everything is falling apart. So we need more than coming to a conference and getting wound up. As I always tell people, I love really biblical seminaries. But biblical seminaries cannot make you a man of God. They only give you the tools so that you can spend the rest of your life growing into being a man of God. So conferences can't just wind you up. They got to give you something that you take home. But taking it home is not enough. And YouTube preachers are not enough. You have to be in a biblical church. A biblical church that's constantly setting before you what? Everything God has done for us in Christ. Now, here's something that you need to know. It's very important. The more 
If you have an unregenerate heart, the more you learn of who God is, of God's righteousness and God's works, the more you will hate him. That's just true. That's true. You hate the light. If you're unconverted, you hate the light because you love darkness. And the more light you see, the farther into darkness you run, and the more you hate the light. Just like when I was a little boy and I'm going to go fishing, I'm turning over rocks and logs to find worms. The beetles, soon as they see the light, they just go under. That's the unconverted man. But now, if you are Christian, that is not the case. That is not the case. If you are truly regenerate and truly converted, the more you hear of God, see of God, the more you understand of God, the more you'll love him. And the more you will be motivated to obey him. Now, let me share with you how this works. When I first married my wife, I loved her. I loved her. Nearly 30 years have gone by. I'm not the same. My wife's not the same. You would think in 30 years things would be kind of common. Because newness always wears off. I'm older. My wife is older. We've changed. There's so many things. I love my wife now more than I did then. Even though now her hair is gray. She's changed. But I love her now more than I loved her then. Why? I know what you're thinking. Because you're carnal and silly. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. You know the moment a man talks like that? I'm going to tell you about the idolatry of men. The moment someone talks about that, you know what everyone in the congregation is thinking? Wow, what a wonderful guy. He loves his wife now more than he did then. Oh, he's so Wonderful. You're seeing things wrongly. It's just like when you see a guy or a, a, a sister who has an ex- seems to have an extraordinary passion for Christ. What is it you immediately think? There's something wonderful about them. Right? So when a husband starts talking about he loves his wife more now than he did then, you automatically think, what a wonderful guy. Maybe he's not wonderful at all. Maybe it's his wife. Maybe he's just a normal, pretty dull guy. Dull-hearted. Nothing special about this guy at all. But his wife, on the other hand, she has such virtue and such inward beauty That she is so magnificent that she can actually draw affection out of this 
dull-hearted 60-year-old man. So now it's changed, hasn't it? Who are you admiring now? Me? No. Because I am exactly as I described. Now you're looking at my wife. I mean, that's amazing. That woman must be amazing. I mean, I mean, it'd be easier to call rocks to come alive than to distract washer. I mean, he's so dull. So now you're thinking, man, what a wife. Ah, so when you read all those biographies of all those great Christians and you walk away going, oh, they're so wonderful. They're so wonderful. You really need to work on your theology. You really do. Maybe listen to some more of these songs would help you. I don't know. Your theology's not good. Those people in those books, the Mary Slessor of Calabars, the Amy Carmichaels, C.T. Studd, George Mueller, all these people, Hudson Taylor, they were born out of the same stock as you, Adam. They were not regenerated any more than you. I cannot find degrees of regeneration in the New Testament. Then what's the difference? Only one thing. They have seen more of the mercies of God. Do you see that? Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. They have simply seen more of Christ than you have. Part of it is their personal study. Part of it may be they're in a church that has pastors and elders that are doing what they're supposed to do. And what is that? Remember when Abraham sent his servant to get his son's bride? I suppose on that, I think it's kind of amazing that when he shows up, man, he starts throwing gold on that girl. And she's going, whoa. Maybe on the way back, that long camel ride, every time he saw doubt in her face, he just brought out another ring. And said, this is how much he loves you. This is how generous he is. This is how gracious. This is how kind your husband is. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And she did. And it knocked her off her camel. Hold your place. Because I know there's some, some preachers in here. Just hold your place. I want you to see something. I would hang this over every preacher's study if I could. Even though this is not directed at all to preaching. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from it and copper is smelted from rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limits. He searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing 
to and fro, far from men. The earth from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon eye caught sight of it. The proud beast have not trodden in it, nor have the fierce lion passed over it. But he puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eyes see precious things. He dams up the flowing Streams, he dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden, he brings out to light. That's the pastor's study right there. Do you know what my job is? Yeah, I'm doing a men's ministry right now. But you know what my primary job is? My primary job is to go into that mine far away from men to spend hours and hours alone in the Word of God. Why? So I can teach theology. No. But what I do teach will be theological. It is to present ever in increasing measure the beauties and the glories and the wonders and the powers of the church's spouse that she might be delighted to him, that she might be motivated to wait for him That she might be strengthened. Yes, I have no doubt. He is everything he says will be to me. One of the things I most love to tell Christians who are weary is to tell them this. I just love it. I said, now listen, I'm going to tell you something. When you get to heaven, I know you're so cast down. You think you failed. When you get to heaven, he will be happier to see you than you will be happy to see him. His unconditional love. And where do we, how do we get a greater vision of that? We get it in the word, brethren. I know I sound like a broken record, but we get it in the word. But we don't go to the word primarily for principle, even though there are principles. We don't go to the word primary to commands or wisdom or anything. Primarily, we go to the word to see him, to see his glory, his beauty, his majesty. And most of all, Everything that is real revealed about God in its most complete form in Calvary. And that's what drives us. It's just a greater vision of God and the cross. Because you can't know God in his fullness apart from Calvary. As a matter of fact, the attributes of God do not harmonize until we get to Calvary. Because the great question throughout history of the scriptures is how can God be holy and just and yet merciful and compassionate to sinners? And the answer is found in Calvary where all the attributes of God are harmonized and we see God in all his fullness. So that we can bow down in reverence before his holiness and rejoice before his compassion and know that all of them are revealed in Christ. And these silly little preachers that come out with their silly little quaint sayings and everything else every Sunday and starve to death the bride of Christ. But don't just think about preachers. There are husbands here. Does your wife study the word more than you do? It's because she doesn't have a biblical husband. 
it's not just the preacher who's supposed to go down in the mine. It's the husband that's supposed to go down in the mine. And teach his wife how to go down in the mine. And teach his children how to go down in the mine. They need to see a man that is not perfect because they won't. They need to see a man who will go to his children and say, I have sinned against you. I was impatient this morning. Please forgive me. And then when they say, that's okay, dad, the father says, no, it's not. Please tell me you forgive me. They don't need to see a perfect dad, but they need to be able to see that God and that cross and that Nazarene is in control of my dad. That love, that look, I see it. As imperfect as he is. We see this all over the Bible. As a matter of fact, piety that does not flow from from all that God is for us and all that he's done for us in Christ is a piety that is somehow connected with idolatry. It's it's everything for him. And, And this is so important, brothers, for us to see. When I got out of seminary, I, you know, I set myself to do one thing. I said, I want to do something. I want. And so I decided that although my IQ may be a bit limited, my education may be quite limited. I'm going to take every verse that I can find from Christ pre-incarnate to his seat in glory. And I'm going to study it. And then I'm going to study the men from the second century to about Martin Lloyd-Jones, even though many times I include Dr. MacArthur in that. And and I, I study every one of those texts and try to glean from men the last almost 1,800 years. I wanted to see Christ. If there is any passion, if there is anything in me, it is... It has been the word of God showing me Christ. Showing me Christ. I've looked at hymns, many of the ancient ones. Show me Christ. And then that's where does, from where does passion come? If it comes from self-will, it's sin. If it comes from an extraordinary man or woman... It is antichrist. It comes from just a greater vision of Christ. And that's why our songs must be filled with Christ. That's why the preaching must be filled with Christ. That's everything points to Christ. I, when I teach about the law, I teach that the law drives us to Christ. It's the purpose of the law. I'm teaching children through the book of Proverbs right now. And one of the things I'm constantly hammering on is that Proverbs in many ways functions like the law. And they say, what way? You go to the law and it shows you're a sinner and it drives you to Christ. You go to Proverbs, it shows you're a fool and drives you to Christ. <laughs> but it's, it's there. And, and we see that if you look over... In 2 Corinthians 5, I want to look at a text that's often very misunderstood. 2 Corinthians 5, 
14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. The love of Christ controls us. Now, so many people, everyone recognizes it's a genitive. I mean, there's a of there. But so many people think, oh, you know, it was Paul's great love for Jesus that drove him. That's not what it's saying. It was Christ's great love for Paul that drove him. Brothers, when you and I look in the mirror at our love for Christ, there's not a lot of motivation. I don't find any motivation by examining my love for Christ. As a matter of fact, I've kind of just stopped even wrangling in those areas. There's no power there. There's cause for lament oftentimes. But when I look at Christ's love for Paul Washer, now there's the motivation. There's the motivation. And again, where is that love revealed? We know love this way. Go to 1 John chapter 4. How do we know love? How do we know love? He gave his son. He gave his son. He gave his son. For God so loved the world. He gave. He gave. He gave his son. It all comes down to. Well, let me put it this way. I was preaching in this, in this auditorium at this university. And this reporter came up to me years ago. He was furious. He was furious. Why are you talking so much about sin? Why are you talking? It's just, just sin, sin, sin. Why are you talking so much about sin? And I said, because I want you to love God. What? I said, have you never read? She loved much because she's been forgiven much. But you can't know how much you've been forgiven. If you don't know how sinful you are. And you can't understand how marvelous forgiveness is if you don't realize the caliber the infinite glorious person that is forgiving you and how he did it you see you want to grow in your love for God you have to come to a greater understanding of of a biblical understanding of who he is and what he did for you That the son of God, you see, everything God's ever done, he's done for his son. And for God to give his only son. And for that son to humble himself and take human flesh. And he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't mean his body was sinful or in any way corrupt, but his body was exposed. He was exposed and opened like a wound to all the consequences of the fall. And that he lives a perfect life and suffers untold things even before going to Calvary. And then in Gethsemane, making that decision, not my will. And then going to Calvary and there being shut up for three hours in a room. With the billows billow 
after billow after billow of the wrath of Almighty God poured out on his head. And I can assure you that after an eternity and eternity, you will understand many things you do not understand. But I believe that no one, not even an archangel, no one will ever comprehend the suffering that happened to Christ in those three hours shut up in that room. Only God Almighty will understand the price that was paid to save wretches. And the more you understand that, brethren, the more you understand that, if it doesn't move you, then you need to go to your pastor for counseling because possibly you're unconverted. But the more you grow in your knowledge of God in Christ, you won't need to be wound up like a toy. It won't be like a sugar high and then a crash. It'll just be. Do you know one of the things I've noticed in the Puritans and oftentimes in Spurgeon in a a work that I'm doing right now on the gospel, I spend an entire chapter doing the same thing that they would write or preach an apology Now, not an apology with regard to a defense, but an actual apology. Flavel does it. Owen does it. I've got several quotes all down through history of men who've done it. That when they were getting ready to speak about the gospel, they would first give a long apology. With regarding to the future failure of whatever they're about to say. Why? Because the beauty of Christ, the magnificence of Calvary. It doesn't matter 10 hours a day, 16 hours a day. It doesn't matter on your knees in your study, reading Puritans, memorizing scripture. It doesn't matter how if the preacher literally pours himself out unto death in study, and then gets up and proclaims the gospel to the point where he has not one breath left in his life. When he comes down from the pulpit, he comes down from the pulpit in shame because he has said nothing compared to what must be said. The greatest mind cannot comprehend anything of the glory that's there hardly. And then the greatest preacher cannot even proclaim properly what he himself comprehends. And that's what we do. That's how we grow. And this, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. To know God and to know Christ. I often say this, particularly to students. I go, you know, eternal life presents a tremendous ethical problem. Well, why? Well, I mean, the mundane. Sooner or later, the mundane has to sit in. Because if if we're talking about gates of pearl and streets of gold and all that type of stuff, I mean, how long can you swing on those gates before it gets boring? There's a problem of monotony in eternal ethics. But there's not. 
Why? Because there is something beyond creation. There is something there that is infinite. Infinite. The glory. Not just glory. Beauty. Splendor. Joy. Of God. And to run throughout eternity chasing it. So that after a thousand eternities you've not even reached the foothills of that Everest. Do you see that? And that's what we do now. That's what preaching is primarily. It's what? It's, it's, it's the preacher seeking to track down that glory to show it to the people. It's the people trying to see more and more glory. And as they see more and more of Christ. They're brought under him. In a willing, joyful submission. And they're motivated. They're motivated. By him. By him. Now let's go back to. Romans 12, he says, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It's interesting that present here is in aorist. It's kind of here the prophetic. It's almost like a Old Testament prophetic call to the Romans and to us. Instead of thinking that Paul is saying, you know, every day recommit yourself Or going in front of the church as some churches do. Altar calls every time there's an altar call going forward and making the... No, that's not what he's talking about. It's more of an idea of... And this would be my call to you. How long, men, will you limp between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, then serve him. If Baal and this world are God then serve them. But stop walking between two opinions. For once in your life, take a look. For once in your life, consider even the words that you commonly speak. Jesus is Lord. Take a deep, long, biblical look. And not just right now, so that something happens by the end of my speaking. But look and keep looking. Go to your pastors and tell them, teach me how to look. Go to small group studies with other men who genuinely are showing that they're looking. How long will you continue limping between two opinions? Sometimes I'm working with someone maybe who is is trying to learn how to shoot a longbow. Or some kid wants to know about how to bench press better or how to squat better or something like that. And I'll watch them and say, you need to change this, this, and this. And sometimes they'll go, well, I just want to continue doing this. I said, you continue doing this, you're going to continue getting the same results. You want the same results? Continue doing the same thing. It's like sooner or later, you got to break. You got to break finally and say, how long have I been in the Christian life where I just am kind of walking between two opinions? I have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and I'm kind of just there. You say, well, are you telling me to read the Bible? Have you, have you made other commitments to read the Bible? Have you made other commitments to pray more? Well, yes, I have. Has it worked? Well, no, not necessarily. Okay, so what are you going to do now? Do the same thing over again? Are you going to do what I do? 
Go to the elders. Go to other brothers. Go to my wife. Really? No. I mean, go to her first. <laughs> I say, I'm, I just want to be more. I, I want help. I, I want people to pray for me. I want I want to pray with people and for people. I want to be around. I always seek out men who, when I leave their presence, I want to be more noble. I want to be more like Christ. Brethren, I want to tell you something. From almost the moment I was converted until this very day, with the exception of a year or so in Peru. But even then, the Peruvians became, my brothers and sisters became strength. God must know how truly weak Paul Washer is. Because he has always put me with goodly men. With men better than myself. With men who wanted me to be more. I can't exaggerate that more. And I'm not doing some psychology here. You just have to read Ephesians 4. You just have to understand that True growth outside of a vital connection with a local church isn't just, it's just not going to happen. Oh, I suppose it could miraculously in circumstances where God's grace and providence must be extraordinary. But the common way in which we grow, the means of grace, is I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I'm open with them. I'm open with them. When I need wise counsel, I go to Always the one elder, Anthony Mathenia. When I need to know something about theology, I go to Jamie Tucker. I go to co-worker Jeff Shaver, Sean. When I want to talk about just the heart, I oftentimes go to Elder Luke Nash. Do you see? Real names. Real names. Real people. And what I found out, men, is that when I'm strong, sometimes they're weak. And when I'm weak, they're strong. And I open myself to being rebuked, and they have rebuked me. How long will you limp between two opinions, and when will you just go, look, I, I, how much life do I have left? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. I find it's interesting he uses the word body. I find it very, very important. So a physical body, soma, a body, present your bodies. What does he mean? Well, let's just put it in our world today. Walk up to someone, they're professing faith in Christ. They've clearly given themselves over to the world carnality, to sin. You address them in the matter and what is the first thing that comes out of their mouth? You don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. Judge not lest ye be judged. Twist not scripture lest ye be like Satan. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. You can't read my heart. I don't have to read your heart. What do you do with your body? What do you do with your eyes? What do you do with your speech? 
What do you do with your ears? What do you do with your hands? What's the direction of your feet? How are you walking? See, when you talk about heart, brethren, you're talking about the very control center of, of everything that you are. It controls your, your, your will, your emotions, everything. So don't think that somehow there's this, you can have different compartments that don't relate to one another. If he has your heart, you'll have the rest of you. When the scriptures say, blessed are the pure in heart, everyone a lot of times has just this, this idea of white or clean. I think the idea there is blessed are those who has a, have hearts without mixture, without any competing loyalties. Now, none of us can say that completely. Not even the Apostle Paul. Jesus could. But therein lies the fight. When some competition arises, cut its head off. Cut its head with Deal with it severely. Make no excuse for it. He says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. As so many old preachers when I was young would always say, well, the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. It's a living sacrifice. But, but listen to that. You know, so many times I think uh, art is a wonderful thing. Believe it or not, I, I like art. Most people are amazed I can even read. I like art. And, but sometimes you look at religious art and you realize how much damage it has done. For example, most people's concept of Jesus is based upon very wrong, very unbiblical art that should have never been painted in the first place. Their idea of the, you know, crossing of Israel is Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and Cecil B. DeMille, you know. And then we have this idea of sacrifice. We almost have this Catholic idea of morbid, stoic, maybe stoic idea of Suffer for sake of suffering? No. Jesus taught it in a completely different way. He who loses his life, what happens? Finds it. He who keeps his life, loses it. It is recognizing that God so loved that he gave. So when I try to come to a biblical definition of divine love, for me, one thing that is overarching is the selfless self-giving of God giving of self. Even when he gave his son, he is giving of self. It is for the benefit. It is giving of himself. And even the humility in that. You know, one of the things that was really helpful for me, I forget what scholar I was reading. He was very helpful. Maybe it was O'Brien. But he was talking about Philippians. 
in that we see that Christ humbled himself. That there is humility there. And the point he made was, do not confine that attribute of humility to the incarnation. Christ's humility was a manifestation of divine humility. Of God's self-giving. And I think there's some truth to that. And that in that we find joy. I I challenge you. Just continue, you know, being selfish at home. Bucking up against your wife. Thinking you've done something well because you've brought home money and you haven't been unfaithful. Keep, Keep doing that. Or, without making some announcement... Start serving your wife. Just start serving her. Deny your tiredness. Deny her your, your little boys you run with or whatever you do. Deny your toys. And start serving your wife. And, and see if joy doesn't, something doesn't happen with joy. See if you don't sleep better. Have you ever claimed things for yourself that, it, that turned into joy? Have you ever made demands that turned into joy? Have you ever made claims? Have you ever demanded your rights and it brought you peace? Have you ever laid down your life in service and it hindered you from sleeping? It may have hindered you from sleeping just because of the joy of it. Do you see? He's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to turn you into a monk for monk's sake. He's saying this really is the path to joy. It's the path to life. And life is not just breathing in and breathing out. That's not life. That's existence. But the old man told me one time, he said, son... Most people, are, they, they die 30 years before they're buried. They just exist. In Peru, we say, tu vives porque el aire es gratis. You're alive because air is free. That's it. <laughs> you don't want to just keep existing. You don't want to just keep existing with your wife. You don't want to just keep existing with your children. You don't want to just keep existing with your church. You want to live. And how do you live? It's not by drawing everything into yourself. It is by doing what Christ did. It's doing what very God did. You give yourself. And I want to tell you how much more effective it is when you make that commitment and do that within a group of men who know you and hold you accountable In a church where these types of things are preached. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You know, there's so much to say here. Separated unto God. Separated unto God. I belong to God. 
Remember when I talk about meditating on mortality every once in a while? Meditate on this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Spend a week or two meditating on that. I am not my own. I have been separated unto God, which is both a privilege and a responsibility. One of the things I love about, you know, this new translation, legacy, is it, it brings out the idea of doulos. I belong to him. I am a slave to a perfect master. This is the one who made me. This is the one who is wiser than all. And this is the one master who loves me more than I could ever love myself. And he separated me unto his service. And his service isn't just the great commission. Matter of fact, that's not even where it begins. It's service unto him in worship. I find it interesting that the mission movement of Acts 13 begins with ministering to the Lord. It's ministering to the Lord. It's seeking to be conformed to his image. That's where it begins. And then, I mean, if... If you worked for my business and you ruined it, I would have mercy. If you were married to my daughter and you ruined her, probably not much mercy. (laughs) I would hang you in a tree and the news would spread. (laughs) If I love my daughter that much, how much does God love my wife? It's almost fearful. Man. I'm holy unto him in worship, holy unto him with our wives, with our children, with our church, with our employment. A living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. How could anything we do be acceptable to God? Because it is the Lord, our Savior, who sanctifies our offerings. It is the death of Christ. It is his ongoing ministry of intercession. Which is your spiritual service of worship. Some translate it your rational service of worship. I always think it's funny that we always go to extremes. There are people, you know, it's all about worship, worship, worship. Other people, no, no, not at all. It's all about life, 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 life. The fact of the matter is the Christian life is too big to point out one thing and say it's all about that. But I can tell you that both these things are so important. Worship unto God. Sometimes I think, Lord, when was the last time I was praying that I was not asking or not studying, but was just 
praying to worship. Praying to worship. When was the last time, gentlemen, that you ministered unto the Lord in private prayer and song? When was the last time? Will we go around the world ten times from one conference to another and yet the most basic things are not being done and then we scratch our head and think Christian growth is a mystery? Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, both in tongue and in deed. Do not be conformed to this world. Oh, there's so much to teach and I have like three minutes. Do not be conformed to this world. The, the idea here is do not be pressed in. It's, it's more mechanical with this word. Do not be pressed into the same mold. Do not be like... In uh, Peru, we would make adobe bricks and you have a form and you throw sand in there that's very dry. Then you pack it with a certain type of clay and straw and then you turn it over and it comes out. And every one of those bricks are just alike because they come out of the same mold. That's what the world is constantly trying to do to the individual Christian in the church. In the last year, more than any other time in my life, I see the world encroaching upon the church to fashion the church in a completely different mold, not according to the scriptures, but according to the world. And brethren, just use your head. If some new doctrine is being introduced into the church that is actually has its source in the enemies of the church, do you really want to go there? Has that ever gone well before? Did it go well with Platonism in the first five centuries of the church, did that go well? Did Gnosticism go well? Did Judaism being brought into the church, did that go well? Paganism brought into the church up until the 15th century. How how did that work out for us? What happened? When was there a revival? When a group of men got up and said, nothing, we need nothing, no truce with the world, and we don't need to hear anything from you. Sit down. You need to hear from us. You see. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed from which we get the word metamorphosis. Be transformed. This is more organic. This is spiritual. This is life. Isn't it amazing in societies when when certain people or the elitist or government decide society ought to go a certain way? How do they make you do that? How do they make you go a certain way? By coercion and force. First of all, it will be coercion and shame. And then it will be coercion and penalties. And then it will be coercion and imprisonment. It's always by force. How do how does God change men? It is spiritual. It's organic. It's the infusion of life. It is the living word. That transforms a man that transforms a man be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think about your children. And men, some of you are really going to have to make some decisions here. 
they're awake 16 hours a day. Let's say they go to public school five days a week, eight hours a day, in which, if you didn't know it, they are going to be instructed in almost everything that your Bible opposes. Then they're going to come home and they're going to watch TV. Yeah, there's a source of piety. They're going to be on their computer. And their peers are going to be their examples. And they're going to want to please their peers. And then for 45 minutes every Sunday, you put them in Sunday school where they either play games or they paint beautiful pictures of the giraffe whose head is poking out of Noah's Ark. And you wonder why they cannot stand. My, what a mystery. Someone ought to investigate this. Who could be so wise and clever as to figure out this this problem? And then look at you. I don't understand why I struggle with my thought life. Really. How much screen time do you have and how much Bible time do you have? I mean, like that great preacher I was telling you about, David Miller. He goes, this ain't rocket surgery, folks. (laughs) Just, Just think about the basics. I've talked to so many men here this week, driving in the car today. It was like, it was like, I told a story about my wife in Romania and she was teaching these girls for about three days and one of them finally came up to her well was in a question and answer said you know Miss Chaddle thank you for everything but it just seems like on every one of your answers to our questions it's we need to be in scripture more and we need to pray you know why is that and she goes well it's because you need to be in scripture more and you need to pray I don't know what else to tell you Now, I guess there are options. You could run over here to one of these churches and acquire some fire or something. You've probably already done that. It's it's scripture. And it's realizing as a man that we were not created in the body of Christ to be lone wolves. That's not true. Iron sharpens iron. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. You wonder why you have a son that's 28 years old and and is still acting like a boy? And that's because all his life, the only influence in his life has been the other boys his age and vice versa. Where are the men? Where are the men? Where are the men? I hope they're here. And know this. As we close, if you look around you and you see things going on in America and you see the the loss of men and you see so many, um, so much darkness coming forward. But please understand, Christ is in control of the nations and Christ is doing more right now than maybe at any other time in our history.
He is tearing down nations in judgment. He is raising others up. And God is still saving people. I was at a Bible study last night. Someone professed faith in Christ. There was another place. You know, God is saving people. And then I want to encourage you. The epicenter of world missions and and Christianity may be changing. It may be going other places, but it is going other places. When God tears down one nation, he raises up another. I look at what God is doing and has done for the last 20 years, for example, in Africa. The great men that are there, theologians, scholars with piety, biblical churches and example. I look in places in South America, in the Dominican, in Ecuador, in Peru, in different places, Honduras, where God is raising up men. I look in Asia where it's hard to see because there's so much suffering, but their suffering is men. So you may be afraid for our country and you should pray for our country. You should pray for the kingdom, but don't be afraid for it. Don't be afraid for it. Don't be afraid for it. If all of hell emptied, if all the armies of the world came together in one giant mass to attack the throne of Christ, it would be like a little gnat beating its head on a piece of granite the size of the world. Don't be afraid. And know this, not all the oppression in the Middle East is able to stop the advance of the gospel in the Middle East. Not all the oppressors in the world can do anything against the power of the gospel. No, this is not a time for trembling, for tiny hearts and tight spirits. These could be the worst of times. They will be the best of times. Let's be like men, not Neanderthals. Let's be men. What does that mean? Let's be conformed to Christ and let's give our lives in service for him, for those whom he loves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, for all of us as men, as we have a common salvation, so we have common struggles. No, dear God, I acknowledge before you that there is only one hero in this story, and it is our elder brother, Jesus Christ. In his name, Lord, we ask, please, please. Whether it's just grace multiplied or grace overpowering, please change us. In Jesus' name, amen.